Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Another Military History Podcast. My name is Jacob, and today I'm going to be discussing the Battle of Kings Mountain during the American Revolutionary War. So I'll be flying solo this episode. I originally had the episode planned to release on Friday, but due to scheduling conflicts, I had to go ahead and have it uh, released on Saturday. So now this battle in particular is very near and dear to my heart. It's, I've always found it very fascinating for a multitude of reasons. Uh, one of those reasons being that it's really close to where I am currently. Um, you know, the last few years I've been in Roanoke, Virginia. And uh, the town of Abingdon, Virginia is only about two hours southwest of where I live. Uh, and so it's a decent, you know, driving distance away. So it's a very neat little historical town. There's lots of cool shops, some cool restaurants. So my wife and I, I've, you know, found ourselves going down there multiple times just to kind of have fun day trips there, check out the town. And um, what's w- really neat about it is that you can actually go down there, you can drive, you can see the muster grounds, which is where all the Virginia militia mustered, and then they went ahead and marched all the way down to Kings Mountain, South Carolina, joined up with the other militia there, and then fought the British there. So, it's just a cool, really cool little historical landmark. I mean, it's not much there to it. I mean, you just go down there, and it's pretty much just like, you know, a little path and like a pond, there's some geese there and everything. Uh, the geese are always very aggressive there too, which is pretty funny, <laughs> but uh, they are, they're always just like out to get you. But uh, it, it's it doesn't you know look like much, but it was it's a very important historical site, which is almost kind of like you know there's a lot of places like that in the South, as far as as far as the American Revolution goes. I mean, there was more battles in South Carolina than there were in either state, and yet most of these battles you know occurred you know maybe kind of, some of them you know it feels like maybe a couple hundred men or less. Lots of just small little skirmishes that you know don't register as being like very important in the minds of a lot of people today. I mean, they're no like Saratoga, they're no Bunker Hill. They're not going to kind of loom that big and in kind of the national consciousness. But still, all the same, they are important to learn about because they help explain a very crucial time in the American Revolutionary War. So not to mention the uh, so when I was uh, doing my master's program, I went ahead and wrote my final paper on the effectiveness of the South Carolina militia during the Revolutionary War. So I got to write a decent bit about Kings and Mountains. So another reason why it's very near and dear to my heart. So uh, I'll go ahead and move on and start talking about the battle. So just to kind of give some background, so our story starts in at the very beginning of 1779. So at this point in the Revolutionary War, there was just a complete stalemate in the North between the British and the Americans. So Washington's army was encamped at Morristown, Pennsylvania, and General Henry Clinton's army was uh, not far from him. The two forces were basically eyeing each other very warily, but neither side had the strength to mount any kind of, kind of major moves. There would occasionally be some maneuvers, some skirmishing here and there. But neither side was able to actually had enough men, had enough manpower to really do anything serious at this point. So with this stalemate, a new strategy was born. So uh, the British believed that there was very little widespread support for the Revolutionary War. And that the root of the support was a kind of a small cabal of Whig agitators. This is kind of something that, you know, at, at the time was very popular among lots of British people. And so, you know, the historians, you know, debate. Have and have been debating for many years over just how widespread support of the American Revolution, Revolutionary War was. And most people I've heard have kind of come to the conclusion that it was roughly split between, you know, into threes. Like, you know, one third supported the revolution, one third were loyalists, and one third didn't really care either way. So that's kind of the side that I personally think that probably more than likely fell on 
So uh, the British government, though, believed that if it could just oust this cabal of Whig agitators, then loyalists would flock the crown and the British soldiers could focus on defeating the Continental Army by themselves. So it's kind of the very classic, you know, like, oh, you know, these, these, poor, these poor Americans, they're being oppressed, you know, by all these terrible, you know, these these you know, revolutionary zealots, you know, like, oh, if we can just go ahead and invade, you know, then they're going to, all the regular people are going to welcome us as liberators, and then all the Whigs are going to flee, and we'll be able to take over the capital, and then the British army could, you know, focus on defeating the Continental Army. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's always been a, a winning strategy that has never, ever once failed in any other wars that has been tried in. So, uh, this sort of Americanization policy sought to make up for deficiencies in British manpower by having loyalists suppress the Patriot population, which would, you know, theoretically free up British soldiers for more tutin and more more important duties fighting fighting the Continental Army. So uh, aside from now, we're gonna talk a little bit about the South uh, during the uh, American Revolutionary War. So aside from some smaller battles at the very beginning of the war, the South had been mostly untouched. I mean there had been the British had tried to take Charleston once and had been defeated pretty uh, pretty handily by the Americans there. There have been a few campaigns out in the West against the Cherokee, but overall, uh, most of the fighting had been up north. So that would change, though, in May of 1779, when Henry Clinton would invade and capture the port town of Charleston, capturing 7,000 Continental soldiers along with it. So this was, Charleston was the most important, um, most you know, richest city in the South at this time. Uh, it was, you know, massive port city, and so that, and this is a huge blow to the American cause. I mean, you pair that with the fact that he pretty much captured the entire Continental Army in Charleston. It was just a massive blow to the American forces there. So, with the only American army in the South captured, the British started just running roughshod over South Carolina, capturing towns uh, all the way out past 96, going into the backcountry frontier. So, in August of 1780, they defeated another American army under the command of Horatio Gates at Camden. And this defeat nearly wiped out the entire Continental Army there and sent Gates riding a whole 180 miles in only a few days, reaching Hillsborough, North Carolina, before, long before his own army. So this is a Gates' famous flight that you hear lots of people talk about. And I'm going to do a series on Gates uh, later on because I just <laughs> I fucking hate this guy because he's just the, he's the worst general, um, he's the worst American general of the revolution revolutionary war because he's constantly bitching about like oh i would have done such a better job than washington like oh you need to give me his job but then he will consistently like underperform i mean even at the battle of saratoga largely you can contribute that victory to benedict arnold and um daniel morgan but then he took most of the credit for it so and then here as well he's you know you know, they expect them, like, oh, the hero of Saratoga, he's going to do a great job against the British, and then he just totally shits the bat at Camden, uh, wipes out the entire American force there, and, um, and yeah, and then not only that, but he ran away from his own, from his own army, basically, abandoning his men in the field, which I, I can't, as a general, I, I can't think of anything worse, you know, like, than having a reputation of abandoning your own men. I mean, I just, I fucking hate Gates. <laughs> I'm going to do a series on him one day, and I'm going to explain how much more I hate him. So, um, so in the absence of any formal American resistance, British missteps, uh, such as the Waxhaw Massacres, which, so the Waxhaw Massacres is very interesting as well. So basically, after the Battle of Charleston, there were a regiment, a Continental Army regiment, at the command of uh, Colonel Abraham Buford, and they were marching down to Charleston. And then before they get to Charleston, they received word 
that uh, the American forces there had been captured. They'd all surrendered. So Buford started to march back to North Carolina. So after he got caught up uh, by the British there, um, it was a British cavalry regiment and the command of a guy named Bannister Tarleton. And so there's some debate uh, to this day as to what happened. Some sources say that you know, the British basically ran roughshod over Buford's regiment and started just like, you know, cutting them all up. Uh, other sources say that so Buford initially offered some resistance, but then once the British cavalry got too close, he surrendered, like threw up the white flag. And then there's a possibility that maybe a shot rang out. And uh, we do know that Bannister Tarleton was shot off of his horse, whether on purpose or by accident. You know, it's possible that Soldier just didn't register the white flag in time. And then so he went ahead and fired off his gun anyway. But whatever the result was, a white flag was thrown up. And then after the white flag was thrown up, uh, the British um, cavalrymen started just massacring the Americans and wiped out almost the entire regiment. Um, so it was only the intervention by a few British officers that managed to save some of the American soldiers. So this became a huge black eye in, uh, for the British in terms of their public opinion for a lot of the, uh, a lot of the public in the South uh, became, like I said, it became known as the Waxhaws massacre. And then um, later on afterwards, the um, a lot of Patriots would start to adopt kind of the, um, the saying, you know, like Tarleton's quarter, to mean, you know, like massacring someone and not giving any quarter at all. So, um, and not not only that, but they also would burn the homes of uh, patri- of patriots as well. It was very common for them to just go ahead and just torch anyone's house that, you know, wasn't supporting them. And, um, you know, this, these sorts of events caused small bands of partisans under commanders like Francis Mary and Thomas Sumter to start rising up and start organizing against the British. So... Now, although the British hadn't yet won the hearts and minds of all the settlers, the Patriots still needed a victory more than anything going into the winter of 1780. These are really the darkest of darkest days, really since Valley Forge and before that, since right before Trenton. So things are not going well for the Americans. So now we're going to go ahead and go into a little bit behind the man Patrick Ferguson. So, Major Patrick Ferguson was a Scotch officer who had been fighting the British Army since the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. So, Ferguson fought up north under Hound Clinton in the Battle of Monmouth. And an uh, interesting fact about this battle, so at one point he was on the front lines and he was, you know, you know fighting with the Americans. And he noticed there was an officer, uh, you know, in sight on a white horse. And he went ahead and he aimed his rifle at him and then he decided that it would be uh, too dishonorable to go ahead and shoot this officer and then so he ended up not shooting him. So that officer, of course, was George Washington. So uh, he also had experience fighting partisans in South Carolina against the Patriot militia under Elijah Clark and Isaac Shelby at the Battle of Musgrove's Mill. So now Ferguson is also an engineer, too, which is pretty fascinating. He designed a breech-loading rifle that could actually fire six to eight rounds per minute, which, you know, if you know anything about muskets, was substantially it was, it was a substantially faster rate than most of the muskets could fire at that time. So I believe it was like one, you know, it was, I think the average rate was like maybe one or two per minute, I believe, for the average musket. So he's firing, you know, around maybe like two to three times the rate. So in the fall of 1780, Ferguson was assigned to command the left wing of Cornwallis's army as he sought to invade North Carolina. So Ferguson's job was to pacify the overmountain settlers and prevent them from attacking Cornwallis's rear. So he's basically you know, assigned to his Western army and he's supposed to go ahead and, you know, make sure that none of the frontiersmen are attacking Cornwallis as he's invading North Carolina. So, uh, 
His army was made up of around 1,000 lords from militia who were trained as British regulars by Ferguson himself. So they're armed with smoothbore muskets as well as plug bayonets. So the important thing behind plug bayonets is that they're not like the socket bayonets that you can just fit over the rifle's muzzle and then fire using them. They're basically just knives that you stick inside of the barrel of a musket. So you actually can't fire the muskets while using the plug bayonet. So this will be important for later on. So, but now before the campaign began, uh, Ferguson sent a letter to leadership of the Overmountain settlers saying that if they resisted, he would, quote, lay waste their lands with fire and sword. Ferguson would ver- later very much come to regret these words. So now we're going to go ahead and get into the Overmountain men. So just who were the Overmountain men? So the Overmountain men were a group of settlers that lived primarily on the fringes of uh, of the frontier around, like, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, Western Virginia, Western, you know, Georgia, or Northern Georgia, Western South Carolina, all that, you know, kind of very rugged frontier area. So, um, they're, needless to say, they're very hard men. Many of them had grown up fighting Indians, and most were veterans of the 1776 Cherokee War as well, which the Overmountain settlers in the, uh, or, or the Patriot Army there had basically laid ways to, like, some, some I believe... 30-something Cherokee... T- I, think it was, I think the figure was 36 Cherokee towns of the course of a campaign. So, they were men... Yeah, they they weren't they weren't slacks. So... <clears throat> so, Ferguson's rets... I'm, I'm sorry, threats... Um, rallied the Overmountain leadership, uh, who were uh, mainly Isaac Shelby, uh, John Sevier, Charles McDell, Benjamin Cleveland and William Campbell. And so all these men began recruiting frontiersmen in the mountainous regions of South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, and what would later become Tennessee. So uh, due to their, their, uh, you know, like very, very common and very uh, storied successes fighting against Indians, uh, they were uh, very skilled in guerrilla warfare and they're armed mostly with Kentucky rifles and tomahawks. By the time they were done gathering their men, though, their army was about 2,000 strong. So he's got about double. So the Overmountain men have about double the force that Ferguson has at this point. So now we're going to go ahead and get into the march. So the Overmountain men from the various states mustered at Sycamore Shoals, North Carolina, and began marching towards Ferguson in early October. Now, they agreed that William Campbell would be their nominal commander, but they would all act in council. Oftentimes, they would kind of almost do the Roman tradition where sometimes they would rotate command, you know, like day by day. But William Campbell was the overall commander. So uh, as food, they kept a herd of cattle with them on the march. As And then uh, deserters from the main Patriot force soon informed Ferguson, though, of the large force of militia nearby. So Ferguson began to retreat, hoping to link up with Tarleton's cavalry for protection. So, as the army marched towards the next rally point at Quaker Meadows, they crossed the rugged mountainous terrain that often includes snow. And it's very neat, too, because, uh, so the trail that they actually took is now, like, a national scenic trail. It's the Overmountain National Scenic Trail. And so you can actually go ahead and hike that hole. It's something like, I think it's about 300 miles, like, 250, 300 miles you can hike in the mountains of, you know, like, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, you can retrace the original route that they did, which is very neat. I thought about doing that myself a few days because I love to hike. But um, so as they were marching, they changed routes multiple times and split up the army to avoid detection. So after several weeks of marching uh, through the mountains, the frontier army began to arrive at Quaker Meadows. James Williams of South Carolina arrived with 400 men and uh, informed the rest of the men 
that Ferguson was encamped at King's Mountain. So now, we talk about the battle. So King's Mountain, South Carolina, isn't really actually, <laughs> isn't really a real mountain. It's more of just a hill, like, you know, kind of a bigger hill. It only juts up about 60 feet uh, over the um, over the ground. It had almost no cover at the top. It was surrounded by thick forest at the bottom, giving excellent cover to the Patriot riflemen. So Ferguson decided to encamp there to better repel uh, potential Patriot assaults while he waited to link up with Cornwallis and Tarleton. So Ferguson has actually done himself a disservice. You would normally think that getting to the top of you know, a hill would be an advantageous position. I mean, it normally is, but there's very little cover at the top, and then there's lots of force to cover the very bottom, so the Patriots can go ahead and snipe behind the trees while he's just kind of exposed at the top with his force. So the Overmountain men surrounded Ferguson, and William Campbell was giving, uh, given overall command uh, for the battle that would ensue. So now the over, <clears throat> excuse me. So now the Overmountain leadership recognized that command and control was likely to break down amongst their untrained men. I mean, these are all, you know, just you know, militia essentially. They were just frontiersmen, so they were never formally trained. And that's another thing that's interesting about this battle is that uh, Ferguson is the only one who had in, during this battle that really had any any sorts of well, Ferguson and his men, of course. Were the um were the only they were the only side that had any sort of formalized military training, whereas the Americans didn't have any sort of formalized military training at all, and they were all all the commanders were basically men who no one in like you know the continental military establishment had ever really heard of, um so which I think is pretty interesting, and then so uh so William Campbell was given overall command of the battle, and then uh oh I already mentioned that, and then so um. They essentially told them uh, to act. The leadership essentially told their men to act uh, more or less independently, with the only general order basically being go up the hill and uh, see what you shoot and shoot what you see. So they basically recognized that hey, you know, or- order is going to break down in this battle. <laughs> just just go up the fucking hill, guys. Like that's all you have to do. So. Uh, so to begin the battle, William Campbell unsheathed his familiar Scottish broadsword nor was meant to, quote, shout like hell and fight like devils. And so the battle began. Now, we have a source here from the battle, a guy named Captain Alexander Chesney, uh, who was a loyalist militiaman, and the source of the battle wrote that, quote, So Raptor was their attack that I was in the act of dismounting my horse to report that all was quiet and, and the pickets on the alert when I heard their firing about half a mile off. So he's like, okay, everything's fine, and <laughs> just fucking hear shots go off. You, you'll, you'll have to see it. Uh... A guy named Abraham de Paistu, who was Ferguson's second in command, stated, quote, Things are ominous. There's the same yelling devils that I fought at Musgrove's Mill. So the frontiersmen began their advance up the mountain, picking off the lowest militia with pinpoint accuracy from their Kentucky rifles and using engine style guerrilla tactics to great effect. So as they moved up the battle, I'm sorry, as they moved up along the mountain, Ferguson launched several bayonet charges to drive them back. Now, although these charges would initially drive the Patriot forces back, the frontiersmen would just simply melt away until the charge of momentum was spent, and the Lewis would find themselves under fire from other groups of riflemen, and then they were forced to withdraw back up the mountain. So the Americans are using these kind of flexible line formations, and so the, the British are charging down the hill, and then, you know, initially the Americans retreat, and then, you know, once all that momentum is spent, the British just come under fire again by more guys, and then so they're forced to go up the hill again. So this is kind of what happens when these flexible formations are going up against more traditional linear formations in this sort of battle. So, 
Uh, now, there's a few in- little interesting stories about this battle. Uh, at one point, there was a loyalist fire in a group of frontiersmen, and they kept on trying to hit him, but they just simply could not hit him as much as they tried. So it turned out the reason they couldn't hit him was because he was firing through a hole in a tree. And then once the pages realized this, uh, they quickly managed to silence the sniper th- uh, by you know launching a musket ball right through the hole. So... Uh, which is pretty pretty badass, I gotta say. That's, that's you gotta be pretty accurate to go ahead and you know nail a guy with a you know 1700s rifle through a you know knot hole in the tree. So at another point, a patriot frontiersman named Thomas Young actually realized that he was fighting against his own cousin Matthew McCray, who was cajoled into fighting for Ferguson by his mother in an effort to keep Ferguson from hanging his father, who was a patriot in Ferguson's custody. So when Matthew saw his cousin, he cried out with joy and ran down the hill, joining Thomas on the Patriot side. So now this is another thing that's interesting about the war in the South, because a lot of it was very, very personal, because it was almost entirely militia. There were lots of these guys knew each other. I mean, you were were either the Patriot militia or you were in the Loyalist militia. And then so there was a lot of uh, very brutal, personalized fighting between the two sides. And many of the uh, the conflicts that these guys had went all the way back to uh, before the war, you know, you know, during your know, periods like the regulation. So it is a very brutal, personal, bitter fighting uh, in the South during the revolution. So now there was another frontiersman named Robertson who was a fighting ghost who kept calling his name. So when he realized his enemy was up a tree, he shot him down. And then when the man fell, Robertson recognized a toy neighbor from his hometown. The man stated, quote, Robertson, you've ruined me. Robertson replied, the devil help you. <laughs> so, just like, eh, you know, go fuck yourself, basically. So, slowly but surely, the Patriots made their way up the mountain, and Ferguson's perimeter con- contracted further and farther. So, eventually, there was nothing the British could do to rally their forces, so Ferguson and DePeyster decided to attempt a breakout uh, attempt with a few men. So, Ferguson stated, quote, I will not yield these banditti and attempted to charge down atop his white horse. He was shot eight times in the chest, and his horse dragged his body along the ground for several yards. So, um, so he didn't didn't really work out very well for Ferguson. So uh, Captain Pyster then surrendered the rest of his men, and the day was won for the Patriots. So in the aftermath, uh, there were calls for quarter among the Loyalists, and they were answered with Tarleton's Quarter. Several were butchered or hanged by the vengeful frontiersmen, who then decided to urinate on their bodies. Several hundred were taken prisoner and marched off to American POW camps, though most ended up escaping. So, in the immediate aftermath of the battle, the Upper Mountain Army dispersed their homes to avoid any retaliation from Tarleton, who they thought was still in the area. Uh, though most, if not uh, many, would serve in battles later on in the war, like at uh, Cowpens and uh, at um, uh, the other battle in South Carolina. I'm, <laughs> I'm struggling to... Uh, Utah Springs! Utah Springs! That's the last battle in South Carolina during the Revolutionary War. So, it would have really annoyed me if I didn't remember that. <laughs> so, um... So, what was the impact of this battle in uh, upstate South Carolina? So, Ferguson's army was completely annihilated at the Battle of Kings Mountain. Now, Cornwallis was forced to call off his invasion of North Carolina as his left flank was completely exposed. His entire uh, western army was wiped out. And so, he was like, oh, fuck. You know, I, there's a chance that I might get attacked on my flank. So, he had to go ahead and withdraw. So, tactically, the battle proved that hit-and-run guerrilla tactics of the frontiersmen could be employed effectively against the British. So, the British were fighting in these very linear, standard formations, and they just got picked off one by one by these frontiersmen who were sniping behind trees and boulders and using Indian-style guerrilla tactics to very great effect. So, 
Hughes Mountain was also a huge morale boost for the Patriot cause, which was at its lowest point previously since the Battle of Trenton in 1776, right before this. So, now this battle also had a huge impact on the lowest population of the South. Uh, it convinced many of them that the war simply was not worth fighting for. So, um, you know, so all, as all these prisoners, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the British prisoners ended up escaping, and then those guys would go back to their home, and they would tell about just how terrible that battle was, and then it had this effect of kind of sorting kind of chilling loyalist um you know um support for the british and after this battle the british would find it much harder to recruit loyalists in very large numbers which of course would severely hamper their you know sort of you know americanization policy of basically you know trying to delegate the duties of suppressing the patriot population to loyalists uh which would then supposedly free up their own soldiers to fight against the patriot uh the uh continental army so uh, it would also set in motion the events that would lead to Yorktown a, f- a few months later. So Tarleton would uh, later on lose handily to Daniel Morgan in the Battle of, Idol of uh, Calpens, and Cornwallis would later win a Pyrrhic victory in the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which of course would force him to retire to Virginia, where he would later be pinned in by Washington and Russian bow at Yorktown. Uh, to this day, it was the only battle of the American Revolution that was fought almost entirely by Americans. The only person of European descent in that entire battle was Ferguson. He was from Scotland. Everybody else was from the uh, United States. So, you, like I said, either Loyalist Militia or Patriot Militia, which again kind of uh, lends itself very well to this narrative of, of the war in the South being a war, you know, neighbor versus neighbor, friend versus friend. So, uh, that's the Battle of King's Mountain. So uh, let me know what you think about it. Uh, go ahead and uh, look us up on uh, Patreon as well. You can go ahead and join the Con Squad for only three dollars a month. You get access to bonus content. Uh, I will be go ahead and getting out some of those bonus some of those bonus episodes very soon. I've been a little bit lax with that just due to scheduling conflicts, but uh, I'll go ahead and get on that soon. As well as uh, go ahead and look us up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you find your podcasts. Uh, review us as well. Uh, it does a great deal to kind of help spread the word to people and then uh, through the algorithm, I assume. <laughs> and uh, yeah, until then, uh, have a great time, guys. See you later.